Turning the analytical theory of, of theories of possible cells. And with slight apologies to any of you who were at the SRHE symposium we did, because there is some overlap. It's not, it's not, it's not the same presentation, <coughs> but there is some overlap. So my argument or structure, if you like, for today is I wanted to ask what questions are I, we, addressing? Um, and I think it's always important, you know, when we talk about theory and talk about analytical scope, um, that we think what we're using theory for. That it's not, you know, I'm not a social theorist. I'm a sociologist of higher education. Um, our in, what, our what is our interest, in a sense, in this? So I wanted to start there. And I thought one of the ways I could illustrate that is a little bit about how I got there. Um, and I put we, and one of the questions for you at the end that I'd like you to be thinking about um, as I'm speaking is about your roots in or your possible interest in um, the idea of possible selves. Um, what's your interest? How might it be relating to what you're doing? Uh, because as I say, I'm going to illustrate it with some um, examples from my own work. I want to suggest that in thinking about possible selves, and I'll show how, and particularly Martin again, will show how it came from psychology, and I'm a sociologist, but actually how it is a theory of the middle range. So it's not necessarily the most abstract theory, but what it does is it's actually, I find it really useful um, to think about working with empirical data. And again, Rachel is going to show how richly um, it can actually stimulate thinking about empirical data. So I'm then going to actually talk about um, some theory, some of the, the, the more abstract theoretical work that I've drawn on, particularly about temporality, looking at Margaret Archer's work about morphogenesis, about how things change, about cells and cells' reflexivity. And I'm using a, a, a notion from Val Hayes' work. She talks about assemblages, how you put things together um, in order then to read through the possible cells literature. So if you like, what I'm trying to lay out for you um, is my assemblages through which I read. Um, and the possible cells theory, as I've said, comes from um, an attempt to link between cognition and motivation. But what I'm trying to do is to incorporate broader sociological questions. Um, and, of course, then there is the question of the legitimacy of this move and issues of incommensurability and what I've described as theoretical promiscuity. There is a danger that one has a sort of dip-bag approach to theory. What I want to justify, um, and I hope will convince you in this talk, is that, in fact, actually drawing on different strands and different levels of theorising is a legitimate move. Um, as long as we do it knowingly, and I hope you'll think um, that's what I've done. So, the question is, what are we addressing? What work do we want theory to do? Well, it's axiomatic that we're interested in higher education, we're the site of research into higher education. And so we're interested <coughs> in the interactions that take place um, uh, in G and structure and agency that play out. So in a sense, what we're looking at possible cells, or I'm looking at possible cells to do, is to actually think through some of these questions. It's not the same as macro and micro, um, 
because these interactions always play out in time and space. Structure and agency, as it were, um, although we can analytically, and very importantly analytically, separate them for the purpose of theorising, are, are always in play. I want to argue that, that particularly as this is the wider participation, but I mean, it's, it's a theme of, the, um, of, our, of our networks, is that we're concerned with inequalities. Um, and how these connected both globally, and I'll say a little bit about North and South, and the scare quotes are intentional. They're very broad and in some ways extremely crude um, characterizations, but I think they speak to some issues that are important. So Southern theory, although I'm critical of it, I think is raising some quite profoundly important questions, and certainly very politically important questions, but also locally inside um, diverse HE. Um, and then thinking, of course, in terms of cells um, as differentially constrained and enabled. So I think one can begin to see um, that because what we're theorizing about is complex, um, that need, in a sense, to look at what work different sort of theoretical framings can do for us. Um, that's, that's the project. That's the project. So, not theory, theorising. Um, and I've written elsewhere about the dangers of theory by citation. And my joke, feeble as it is, is that always seems to be white men beginning with B. So one has Bourdieu, Bernstein, and so on. Um, it is a feeble joke, but it, but it amuses me. But there is that danger, and I'm sure you've all done it, that you know that Bourdieu appears like a sort of the Holy Grail, or whichever theorist is in is in is in, in vogue as a sort of almost a justifier justify justificatory mechanism that you know one feels the need to cite in order to show that you're doing proper theory and I think that that's I don't think that that's helpful and Paul Ashwin I think has done a really in some really interesting work on the lack of conceptualization of objects of research and what he did was he looked at quite a lot of um, uh, uh, HE papers. And what he showed was how, how that the theory didn't really speak to the empirical work. That actually there was, in a sense, there was a lack of theorizing about the, the objects <laughs> that we're conceptualizing. So the move to possible cells literature um, on my behalf, and I would say very much this has been joint thinking with my colleague, Professor Jacqueline Stevenson, unfortunately is not with us here today, because she's not well. Um, has been part of the process um, of development from empirical data. So it's almost a dialectical process between doing bits of empirical research, worrying about it, and thinking, what do I need to think further and more creatively? And actually, in terms of theoretical work, but then going back um, to empirical data. And as I say, Rachel's work, for example, will show that. But the first move was to these broader theoretical sociological concepts, and that's what I want to actually talk a little bit about. Um, and I said, among <coughs> others, um, uh, my own work, again, is, is, is been influenced by feminist theory, but that's not what I'm particularly going to talk about today. But this notion of assemblages, then, from which the possible cells literature um, can be positively, uh, critically um, reread. And possible selves, then, as a way of conceptualising um, the objects of research. 
So a way of actually connecting um, some of these broader theoretical concerns with the, the concrete, the messy empirical world to hand, and that move backwards and forwards. And I went back to um, classical sociologist Robert Merton um, in 1968, and I probably did read it in 1968 um, as part of my sociology degree. Um, it's theories of the middle range, theory that enables the proper conceptualization of empirical research. And I think that that's quite important. I think sometimes that, um, that finding theory or finding work that actually speaks to the things we're empirically grappling with, these theories of the middle range, and as I say, it certainly is the, 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 um, the problematic that, that, that Paul um, Ashwin um, uh, throws up. And that's what brought me and my colleague Jacqueline to the idea of possible cells as a way of making concrete further empirical work. So, in terms of my journey concretely, I was doing quite a lot of work on personal development planning, which was a national program, uh, which said that every all students, including doctoral students, should actually have opportunities within the curriculum um, to reflect on and plan their personal stroke professional development. It was very much within the policy climate um, of employability and of futures conceived of future social mobility. And this will all be very, very familiar to everyone in this room, that higher education is linked to these policy agendas of future employability. So in a sense, the, the subject we were being asked to produce in higher education um, was this rational, forward-looking um, student person, um, uh, supply-side um, in terms of supply-side economics, who reflected critically on the self and adjusted the self through planning um, in order to develop, in order to, to, to meet these, these policy objectives in terms of employability, future social mobility. Um, and I did some empirical research with, it was on a sociology course, um, and a lovely group of colleagues came to us um, and said, We've done all this PDP stuff. We've got theories about metacognition. They were really good teachers. They were really concerned, fabulous teachers. And we've got this as the assignments. And my God, are we depressed? Because actually, um, it wasn't about all this higher metacognitive sort of stuff going on. A lot of it appeared very trivial about time planning and how we, they couldn't sort it out. And they really were they really were struck by this huge gap between the pedagogical and policy rhetoric um, of this curriculum innovation and actually what they got on the ground. And what we decided to do, I decided to do with, in, in consultation with them, was to interview their final year students and to ask them what had made a difference to the ways they studied. And I only brought it back to what they'd done on the PDP modules towards the end of the interviews. And what became really apparent was that my data was really contradicting um, this notion of a forward-looking, planning, rational temporality. So I got really interested 
um, in this view of, of student temporality. And I use the idea from Arojo, and I'm not sure how to pronounce that, so apologies, about the present time lived in the past, between the past, present and future. So in the first year, students described how it was very much in relationship to their, to their past at school. Um, and they were very, very late in a sense, and I think unsurprisingly so, about thinking in terms of any longer term futures. So on the one hand, we got a sociological literature that was telling us about the, the inevitability of particular forms of reflexivity. My data was suggesting that this was not the case, and I was really interested in that. The student data also was pointing me to a sense of the important sense of the self who is me. Students had really quite developed ideas about the stuff they could change and the stuff they couldn't. So they would say things like, well, I've just always been the sort of person who plans, or I'm just the sort of person who doesn't. Um, and Jacqueline and I are giggling over uh, my inbox is an example of this. She cannot imagine how I can live with the chaos of my inbox. Mm -hmm. um, she, her inbox is cleared every night. Mine, I, I was got hundreds of stuff in it, and I mean my 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 ways of negotiating it. But actually, what's interesting is I definitely have a sense that's the self who is me. Um, yes, there is there's undoubtedly room for improvement, but actually, it was quite interesting the sense of what you can change about self, but what's actually really deep about you, just your way of being in the world. So these two things about temporality. Um, and um, this, the, this whole notion of selves, and so you can see where I'm going in terms of how I'm going to eventually get to possible selves, came out of actually this need to grapple um, with this empirical data um, and actually to think much more theoretically about it. So what I did um, was I went back to, in fact, um, work that had been done on temporality um, and I was really interested in this notion of how people think futures because I wasn't finding the sort of future thinking in a sense that was described but also I was beginning to think that this whole idea of how we theorize futures was much more complex and I went to Adam and Grove's work, and they talk about the ways in different periods historically um, people, cultures, have thought futures. And they talk about told through divination, tamed, for example, through ritual. Time, as time becomes commodified, time trader, the, the dominant 19th century, time is money. And futures transformed. And this, I think, is the really interesting one in terms of the sorts of policy and uh, pedagogical orthodoxies um, in terms of where we are now, of the present future, emptied of content and meaning. The future is simply there, an empty space, waiting to be filled with our desire to be shaped, traded, formed, according to rational plans and blueprints, holding out the promise that it can be what we want it to be. So we're encouraged, particularly in higher education, to view our students as people who go forth into a future um, that is theirs for the making. Now, 
that seems to me immensely problematic and to, to Adam and Grove. Um, and they argue that the future present, in contrast to present future, is a standpoint with reference to the deeds and processes already on the way. In other words, the future <coughs> isn't. It's already full of all sorts of inequalities. It's already structured. Um, I mean, if one thinks in terms of ecology, uh, the future is sadly not empty. It's extraordinarily full of the sorts of processes that are actually already structuring. And ontologically, the status of latencies are already inbuilt in the actions of the present. Um, and for those of you who know a little bit about it by work, what you'll recognise here is that this I took from very much from critical realism, which I've been working on for years. So futures are already non-factually entailed by the real mechanisms in the social and natural worlds uh, which structure the future. So what, coming from this work on temporality I brought, was really a critical criticism of the present future, which erases the way structural inequalities are not just in the here and now, but actually um, are, are constantly being um, re-instantiated um, into the future. Um, and the inequalities into which future and capital re re relentlessly restructures the possibilities. Um, so that notion of the future is not empty, but already emergent in the present, provides one element of the critical framing uh, for reading possible selves. Moreover, as Jern has argues, that the dominant colonial Western temporality enfolded other notions of time. So this time traded, um, this time as futures transformed, um, really rendered indigenous and sub the subaltern as denigrated as lazy, anachronistic, etc. And one of the, you can see that one of the 19th century colonial tropes is of the lazy natives, that, 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 that the whole notion of actually how coloniality operates is also through an imposition um, and a denigration of other forms of temporality. So I think that we need to <coughs> recognise historically different ways of thinking about time and not completely erased even through futures transformed. So there seems to me a whole number of really important empirical questions about the extent to which we can see the coexistence of different forms of subjectivities and forms of temporality. Um, and it's significant then for research in thinking about time and history, uh, particularly in the global south. And I'm using that with, I will talk about that more if people want, but I'm using that with all the sort of cautions um, about the complexities of the notion um, of, of south. The other stream of thinking I was doing um, is in terms of thinking about structure and agency. And time becomes important, if you like, in a rather different sense, and it leads also into the ideas of selves, um, in terms of analytically distinguishing structuring conditions and then agency as socio-cultural interactions resulting in structural elaboration, change, or structural reproduction, morphogenesis, morphostasis. 
So when we come to think about possible selves, we're always aware of time one, the conditions not of our own choosing. So people are imagining their possible future selves also in terms of the structuring conditions in which they find themselves and their understanding of those structuring conditions. So it's actually not a non-agentic <coughs> version, it's how actually people understand the possibilities um, of their own situation. And those are, as we know, uh, extraordinarily unequal. So I was bringing, so that's, in, that's, that's all already there in the possible sales literature, but I was bringing a particular sociologically informed inflection to it. And what Archer suggests is that as time is speeded up at both the structural and cultural level, morphogenesis presents actors with contextual incongruity. Um, if you are uh, um, uh, somebody who's from the EU at the moment, um, in terms of actually how you read that, the speed of change, the ways, this is not a view that says structure is less important. Um, structure is profoundly important, but much more difficult to read. I mean, you know, I think, I think, I, I mean, I have made some terrifically bad political readings of the world in the last sort of 18 months or so, and I was not alone. So actually, it's not that structure becomes less important. It's not a sort of everything's a free agent, you know, the sort of reflexive self as open. But actually, the difficulties of negotiating at a time of speeded up structural and cultural change. And what she argues then is that it renders communicative reflexivity as particularly problematic. Communicative reflexivity relies on the confirmation of our views from others and ties people to their natal origin. And that gets disrupted when we can't read um, change, is what she argues. It also, I think, is actually really interesting in terms of rational calculation and autonomous reflexivity, which underpins social mobility. So again, I mean, she was writing this post just pre the crash. Uh, but she was talking about um, the ways in which the world becomes actually really contextually um, incongruous. And that's actually a real issue then in terms of this notion of rational planning, um, in terms of actually how one might make a future. Um, and what she suggests is at the system level then um, that meta-reflexivity becomes the dominant orientation. Uh, I think it's really important to say dominant, not necessarily the most common. So this is a model of actually uh, uh, um, thinking about how you might characterise a historical epochs rather than actually what's the most common in terms of counting up individuals. And what she talks about is um, meta-reflexivity is subversive towards social constraints and enablements, uh, enablements because of the willingness to pay for the price of the former in the attempt to live out the idea and to forfeit the benefits of the latter. So Archer's really interested in how we make sense of the world. It's an agentic notion of how <coughs> thinking about the self. And she's suggesting that meta-reflexivity represents one way of dealing with the complex temporalities of the future. Um, however, I want to suggest that that, that useful though these ideas are, again, that some meta-reflexives are better positioned 
in terms of the capitals at their disposal to navigate this already structurally uneven, um, these structurally uneven futures. Um, and many studies suggest that students with enhanced cultural and economic capital um, have the capacity to change their strategies in negotiating their ways through higher education and beyond. And Jenny Case and Delia, um, I've lost Delia's second name, gone, uh, work in South African context is beginning to, sh to show this uh, work with Sue McKenna at Rhodes University as well. Um, that that ability, that flexibility is not equally um, available in terms of the enablements that people um, have. So, um, these were some of the things that I was thinking about and drawing on. So you can see I got, I mean, from thinking about, isn't it odd that these third year students are not, are not operating in the way we did, to actually looking at some of this theorizing at the macro sociological level um, in, terms of, and in terms of broader historical tendencies about how we might make sense of our students sat in higher education, thinking or not thinking about their futures, uh, but also the forms of reflexivity um, that they can draw on and might be helpful or not helpful um, to them. But that was quite a long way away from our data. And also we wanted then, and I'm saying we consciously because this was then the next stage with Jacqueline, to try think about, okay, um, the PDP research was mine and it wasn't really about futures and possible cells. I sort of stumbled on, the, on, on my subject. I thought it was about a particular pedagogy, which it did, it wasn't a particular curriculum form, but it threw up these issues. So we were looking and thinking about how can we address these issues of temporality and these issues of possibility directly. And that's what brought us um, to the possible cells literature. Um, so the possible cells literature, and again, Martin will talk much more about this in terms of its origins, um, was based on work by Marcus and Urius. Um, to include those cells those that are desired and those that are not. Um, and they talk about the ways it can be experienced singly or multiply, or multiply and maybe highly elaborated or not. So it's the ways in which people think about how can I imagine my future um, in either uh, the, and, and the, the variations on that. And in the original work that was done, um, possible cells play both a cognitive and effective role in motivation, and again, Martin's going to talk much more critically about motivation. Um, influencing expectations, um, of what, what, what possible cells are possible, and crucially, what are not, in then functioning as incentives to future behaviour. So, providing goals for the achievement of a desired future or the avoidance of a negative one. So that imaginary um, of uh, how am I going to be in the world? What is possible? I mean, in a sense, I think, that, I think the term itself um, is, is highly evocative. Um, and that's, I think, I, I think, in a sense, it's one of its attractions, is it's encapsulated uh, something that's quite important. And although I've said it comes from cognitive um, psychology, 
Um, uh, one of the things about, and I think that's one of the reasons it's been actually attractive to sociologists, um, is that people have worked with it in terms of thinking about the ways in which desirable and undesirable futures are influenced, among other things, by past academic experiences, family experiences. Um, in other words, really by some of the sociological um, differentials. So racial and gender differentials uh, are significant, not only in how students view their chances of becoming their desired possible selves, but also thinking about strategies they're putting in place to achieve them. And some of the subsequent work we've done, we looked at people in further education who are on access courses, who often from very, very difficult backgrounds were putting strategies in place in order to get somewhere else and had very, often very clear views um, about what they didn't want to be, um, including some examples of people with... I mean, deeply disturbed. I mean, multiple criminal convictions, for example, which they recognise were going to carry into the future and inhibit, structurally inhibit, they were not naive about this at all, structurally inhibit their possibilities, but were nonetheless um, thinking about uh, what they, they wanted to get out of this place, really. So, th so that was the sort of, that was in a sense where we were coming from. So where we got to really was to think critically about possible selves in relationship to temporality, um, critically about the present future um, as the dominant modality. So questioning this notion of the future as empty, uh, because the, the danger, I guess, with possible selves is that it could suggest uh, a greater openness than much of our sociological and higher educational research um, suggests is possible. I think it's really important to avoid deficit models of different orientations to the future and forms of reflexivity. Um, there, is, there is a sort of, in, I think, uh, often unconscious privileging, privileging in higher education of autonomous reflexivity and a downplaying of the possibilities of communicative reflexivity. Um, and again, I think we've seen this with um, the work of Pierre Bourdieu, um, that actually, if it's done crudely, it could become a deficit model. You talk, talk about the problem of those who don't have the capitals. And again, you know, there is a danger, I think, in the people who, you know, you can see from, if you don't have the role models, so you don't actually see, um, and it, it, it puts it back firmly. Um, back onto the, the individual again. So these, I think, are some of the things um, that we really need to be very aware of um, when we're thinking about uh, future possible selves. I would also um, talk about the empirical basis, Marcus and Neurosis. One of their instruments they use is a questionnaire of 150 possibilities. Um, and it's culturally normative with a very strong US bias. Um, I mean, one of the tables, uh, percentage of respondents endorsing selected self items. Um, and on, physica on physical, the ones that they pull out are sexy, in good shape, wrinkled, and paralyzed. 
Uh, I would suggest that this actually represents a deeply embedded and deeply unquestioned um, set of, um, um, yes, uh, uh, you can see the cultural assumptions. Um, and the occupations, some of the examples, were media personality, owner of a business, janitor, and prison guard. So I think that we're using this material, but I think one needs to be quite critical then of also the assumptions that, 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 that were, were, were embedded in, particularly if one's going to use it outside the North American context, but perhaps also um, looking more broadly in terms of the sorts of issues about North and South that I raised earlier. And I want to argue a more extensive then study of self-knowledge. This is the quote from their paper. Uh, which is why I think, although I'm critical of it, it actually does actually offer, um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's been felt to be productive, because they argue for a more extensive study of self-knowledge that, that takes seriously the individual's con uh, conceptions of possibility. And it seems to me that that's the progressive things that people, particularly like Rachel's been doing in her work and other people I know in the room have really taken that aspect of the work. So that, I think, is in a sense, bringing a sociological sensibility to this work uh, gives it that, that's what we've been using it for, to speak back to and give empirical pur uh, purpose in terms of actually using it as a theory of the middle range. So, Analytical Scope Expanded, which is, was the title um, uh, uh, of my talk and what I was trying to do today, so I think we need to think critically about possible selves in relationship to temporality. Um, um, and sorry, I've, I've skipped a slide. I've gone back. Um, yes, self. So this notion of self-knowledge as open to critique from post-colonial theory and northernness by a northern bias. Um, and I think that there's some really interesting work that's been going on, particularly in Australia, and very differently in New Zealand, because indigeneity is, is a very different phenomena in those two particular contexts, for example, about how the self is understood relationally. So that one can't make the assumption, one shouldn't make the assumption, I, I'm, I'm arguing, I'm, I'm arguing a normative point as well, as well as a theoretical one, that actually how the self is understood is culturally invariant. Um, and there seems to me a whole number of um, uh, fundamentally, actually, also empirical questions um, in relationship to that. And Catherine Manathunga has done very, very interesting work um, looking at um, that in an Australian context, in the context of doctoral students. I think it's really important not to see race, gender, sexuality, etc., solely as variables. There is a danger that you end up with a sort of variable type analysis. So, you know, you're a woman, ah, oh, well, I can read off from that. And I think that that is, is, is very problematic. So the whole issue of, of these is actually um, as, as, as not categories of variables, but also as, as not just so limiting, but are also conditions of possibility. I think the link between cognition and motivation can embody different conceptions of futures. And motivation is more broadly understood. And Martin, I know, is going to say much more about this. I think that the, the notion of motivation that's packed into the possible self literature um, is actually a very thin one, and one that actually I think we would need to, we need to expand. Um, and as sources of critique in terms of meta-reflexivity. 
So what I'm arguing really is bringing the possible selves into consideration with broader conceptions of structure, agency and temporality um, and using more qualitatively nuanced empirical work. But it gives us a way of, um, it gives us a level, if you like, about where we can actually really speak to, to empirical data. So, I would argue that despite the different theoretical origins, it is legitimate to draw on a number of theories. So I've been drawing on critical realism, I've been drawing a little bit on post-coloniality, I've been drawing on theories of temporality, which actually come mostly from Heidegger, um, uh, and pulling stuff together. And then I'm putting it alongside work that ultimately derive from a much more psychological framework. I think it is actually legitimate to do this, as long as we understand that what we're doing is we're theorizing, not serious static. So it's not, a, it's not trying to use these as sort of, oh, I can cite all these people and it makes me look rather clever, but I'm actually trying to use it because it's a way of thinking through um, stuff that I think it is very important to theorise about as, uh, as people thinking about higher education. So it needs to be done knowingly and it needs to tease out the contradictions. So these contradictions of the future is already partially entailed in agency. What's the role of agency? And I think one needs to make careful arguments about that. I think you can do it. Um, and I've, I've tried to use, use Archer when I've been trying to do it. But we need to make careful arguments. We need to avoid essentializing. Um, and I would say that about race and gender. But also essentializing um, assumptions in terms of north and south. While at the same time recognizing that those theorists are saying something that's quite important and challenging. Um, in terms of not equally essentializing a, a homogeneity. So globalization is just a, a homogeneous mess, really. Um, so the nuance of place, space, and history, and a careful reading of data. And what I'm suggesting is that if, if thought creatively, um, possible selves is one resource um, in, in terms of doing this. So... My questions to you, I guess, are does, or how does this relate to you? What other theoretical resources are available in critical reading the possible selves literature? I've not taught, for example, explicitly about feminist literature, but I think, again, and I know that Holly, for example, has been working with, with Ricoeur, who's, who's written very interestingly on time. What are the implications for how we might explore students and other people, I mean, uh, practitioners, um, possible selves? Um, and what are the implications for how we analyse and frame empirical data? Because in a sense, what I want to do is to also draw it back to, going back to our empirical data and to really try to theorise the objects of our investigation um, in ways that give us real insight um, into those, into the sorts of processes um, that I think we share a common interest in. Thank you.